The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, Operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Oh, of course, there's two hosts. How typical. I'm supposing one of them's the smart one and the other's the funny one, then? No, no, we're both the smart one, I think, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it's not convincing, thanks. No, no, okay, (laughs) fine. Anyway, and tonight we're going to be talking about tropes, specifically tropes in gaming. We're going to be talking about the way that tropes influence the way we play role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games. And I think we'd better start this out with a little bit of a definition, as per usual, Don. So, Don, what is a trope? Okay, this is where it gets tricky. You know, that accelerated fast. (laughs) Anyway, um, we're going to be discussing role-playing games. Mm-hmm. And, but a lot of these principles, I think, apply to any kind of story that you do. Right. Gaming, it's 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 a little more obvious because gaming, you're constructing everything from the ground up. Well, or you're letting the rule book do a lot of the heavy lifting in that regard. Mm-hmm. So to that end, there's three things that I think you got to keep in mind. And that would be features, tropes, mm-hmm. and gamisms. Okay, can you define each of those? Yeah, I can. It's, 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 I have a good example of the first two. Okay, let's, let's a, hear it. A feature is basically something that happens within the, 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 the world of your story. Okay. And a trope is something that happens within your story but is influenced outside of the story. Okay, can you give examples of those? I have a good one. If you remember the original Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. The idea of dilithium crystals powering warp travel. Mm-hmm. That's a feature. Okay. Because it's something that the characters in the setting are aware of. They deal with it. They they, they control it. It's something tangible in the story that affects the world in the story. Okay, so it's something that's part of the setting, basically. Yeah. Now, okay. the the idea, the, the running gag of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Ensign Ricky beam down to the planet, and we know who's not making it to the next commercial break, mm-hmm. that's a trope, because that's something that comes into play outside of the setting. Like, the characters are not aware that Ensign Ricky's not going to make it back. Yeah, they always think that poor Ensign Ricky's going to make it. <laughs> yeah, like, no matter how many times the, the, the less than... A, important crew members beam down and get turned into salt or eaten or set on fire or poisoned by radioactive plants or eaten by a pancake or how whatever happens mm, pancakes you <laughs> i'm the funny one sorry dude i have to <laughs> okay wow that turned weird in a hurry <laughs> but anyway it's mm-hmm. it's it's that idea that a trope is something that it's part of your story but it doesn't happen within the world. It happens outside of it in the minds of the people partaking. 
Okay. Now, when you say in the minds of the people partaking, are tropes written in on purpose? Like, is the uh, creator actively putting this in? Or is this just something that the audience is noticing, like a pattern, basically, that the audience is noticing and that they are imposing on it? Or that they just recognize the pattern? It's like, hey, look, there's that pattern that always pops up. I think um, it can be both. Okay. And it can it can go back and forth. Okay. Because in a weird way, that leads to the third kind of derivation of this, mm-hmm. which specifically to like role playing games is the gameism. Okay. Is essentially it's something that happens regularly because of the mechanics of the game. So it's a side effect of the mechanics of the game. Yeah. Okay. Where it, Whereas, like you were saying, a trope can be something that the audience just notices happens, like the idea of the no-name crew member mm-hmm. getting killed. There's a reason for that, eh, writing-wise. Right. Well, they had to write in these extras each week, and they couldn't kill the main characters, so therefore, extras are the ones who get bumped off. Yeah, because you To generate need... drama. Yeah, and, and suspension. It shows, like, the consequence mm-hmm. of this. Yeah, yeah. And and then it becomes something that if you do it often enough, the audience becomes aware of or vaguely mm-hmm. aware of. And then yeah. you can you can play with that. You can write an episode like that was Family Guy mm-hmm. where this originally comes from. And then William Shatner gets run over with a car and they pan and he dies and they pan back and you see Ensign Ricky going, oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's only funny if, if the audience is aware of the trope. Right. That's and, true. And it, it, it can and that's how it, it can go back and forth. And then it's it's that idea that like needing the no name crewmen to die because we can't kill off the star. In a role playing game, you'll get things like that that come about Yeah, I'm gonna say similarly, but because of how the mechanics of your game world are set up, it leads to something weird going on that the characters in their the game world might not be aware of Mm -hmm. but the outside participants are um one of them being the idea that in a lot of uh, palladium games Mm -hmm. characters can take a lot of damage yes they can and that led to a running gag for us of okay i'll take out the guard got him let's go you know <laughs> sorry that's pretty funny <laughs> it was and and again it's it's a byproduct of how how the mechanics work whereas story-wise it it's not something that would happen like games guns are supposed to be frightening in in palladium settings even when mechanically they aren't mm-hmm. and and feature-wise the participants of the world the characters would not look at things like that they would not you know oh he's only got a submachine gun i'll be fine like nobody in that world is supposed to think like that yeah it doesn't make any sense nobody should think like that but Mm -hmm. they think that way because of the gamerisms that go along with uh playing a palladium system you very quickly realize that congratulations you can dodge lasers yeah and and it's 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 again it's unique to role playing games because if I'm writing a story in whatever medium, mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about balancing things 
or simulating things as much because I'm in control of the story. Whereas a role-playing game, it's backwards. I'm setting up the story and then we're seeing where it goes. Right. Okay. In theory, although I would argue for many GMs, they really do know where the story goes. It's pretty much on rails, actually. Yeah, and that's almost universally panned in any like role-playing game book. In the Game Master section... One yeah, the big... they, they, they tell them not to do that, but they all yeah. do it anyway. And Yeah. And in my experience as a GM for many years, I found that, well, it really just depends on how heavy-handed you are. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you, a good GM is basically running the story mostly on rails anyway. It's just that if they're good at not letting the players realize that they're on rails, or at least giving them just enough control to not, to, to think... Giving them just enough control to let them think they're not on rails is really what it amounts to. Yeah, and it's the same thing with a story that, like, mm-hmm. you want the audience to think that what's happening is being revealed to them. It makes them feel like you're part of the story. You, yeah, you, yeah. You, you don't know how it ends. You're surprised by this. If it's a murder mystery, you want the audience to be able to solve it before the characters. So they feel like. They have control in that you're not watching something scripted, although you totally are. Yeah, yeah. It's that illusion of control mm-hmm. and illusion, or illusion of participation. Take your pick. Yeah. But, but okay, so basically what we're mostly talking about then is the in-universe stuff versus the audience perception of it. Yeah, basically. So, yeah, so the feature stuff is what the characters would think. And what the characters would believe in the world if they were living in a real world that functioned like this. Mm-hmm. And the tropes and the gamerisms are what the audience is aware of that's going on. They're the hidden rules of the universe that the audience is in on. Yeah, that's probably the best way of looking at it. Okay, okay. All right, so now that we got the definitions down, where are we going with this? Uh, we're starting with role-playing games. Surprise. And I think there's a couple of ones that come out of gaming that are universal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they're, they're, what you find happens in, in, in gaming, and this is why I say a lot of what we'll talk about applies to any kind of story. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. If I'm writing uh, an action story... Right. There's certain expectations, and I can just write that when I write the story. Right. In many ways, I, I have to, but... In a game, I'm going to have to have a rule that facilitates the kind of outcome that is prevalent in the genre in which my game is set. Mm-hmm. And probably I can think of three kind of universal ec- like examples. Okay. The first is goons. Okay. What about the, them? Well, it's it's the idea that you've got kind of a, a cast of warriors who are weenies that they're they're just there to kind of look tough and get mowed down in great numbers yes yes mm-hmm. and lots that's of fun yeah and that comes from like especially like say movies mm-hmm. but you've always had some kind of of disposable goon in 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 different stories especially action stories yeah yeah like when charles bronson's surrounded by the street gang they don't all have like lives and backgrounds most of them don't even have a name they're just here as bullet catchers Mm-hmm. Like that that was uh what was it? Was it the first or the second Austin Powers that had that scene? I don't remember. 
where all the the guards attack him and he's like i don't know what you're gonna you don't even have a name tag i don't know what you think you're gonna do and they all like <laughs> give up and run away i've forgotten that okay but but that's that concept of goons and in, in a lot of role-playing games it comes across as certain npcs just have crappy stats well, yeah, they're there to be mowed down so the heroes feel superior and they get to have that moment of uh, just being the super overpowered macho guy or girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, another thing that comes up in games is luck. Mm-hmm. Which is another gameism where uh, the player's characters and sometimes non-player characters have a pool they can draw from to affect dice rolls. Mm-hmm. Because that represents, like in most stories at some point, the hero is going to experience some kind of like amazing coincidence. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, whereas in a game, if you want to avoid, like you were saying, that railroaded feeling, you mm-hmm. don't want to just throw that kind of stuff in or just have it happen. But if the players have a pool that they can draw from to affect things, you get that same effect in the end, but you get there differently because it's it it adds that feeling of control. Because the player is deciding when to enact Deus Ex Machina or not. Well, it depends. But actually, I would almost argue the opposite, in fact. Okay. It, I would still go along. It's a gamerism, no question. But I would say that those luck pools usually tend to be there to basically prevent the pl- characters from dying. That, mm-hmm. That's mostly what they're used for. They're either used to make the great shot or the character's going to die. And so they, they blow a little luck and they save themselves. Well, that keeps the plot on track. Right. Okay, they're using that luck to not die, which means they don't have to make a new <laughs> character and don't have to screw up the GM story. Mm-hmm. Or they're using it to finish off the villain, which the v- which the GM wants to have finished off. So that's keeping the story on track too. So in my personal experience, that, that luck stat actually gives the players an illusion of control, but in reality, it's actually helping the GM hugely. That's a good way of looking at it, because you're right. I think you're right, because that's the kind of thing in a story, and you Mm -hmm. see it all the time, especially action stories. Oh, yeah. The idea that when the hero's running away, for some reason, the bad guys always aim a foot behind them. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And at the the ground, for some reason. Yep. It's, it's, yeah, it represents the kind of stuff that you can have your thrilling action, and in a movie or a book, I can make sure the hero just doesn't die somehow, but in a game where it's supposed to be kind of more arbitrary that gets more difficult i think yeah i think you're you're probably looking at it the better way that it it really is a help aid for the game master disguised as a bonus for the player absolutely which is why in my later gming days i haven't gm for many many years but in my later days of gming i became a huge fan of luck systems and would in fact include them in even in games that didn't technically include a luck system i'd be like yeah here's here's some luck points guys and they or fate (laughs) points or whatever you call them and the players would be like oh thank god yeah thanks man that's that's great but what they didn't realize is i wasn't doing it for them (laughs) i was doing it because it kept my story on track i mean it it does help though but you got to remember most games even if they spend luck points the gm gets to determine what the effect is in most cases yeah some there's there's a lot of games where they straight up modify a role, though. That is true. And occasionally, they can, um, in those cases, they can actually kind of mess things up a little bit. Because sometimes, for example, the players will kill someone who they're not supposed to kill. 
by using the luck points to, you know, it's like, oh, he just rolled a critical hit and I'm going to use luck points to make it even worse. And oh my God, my bad guy is dead. <laughs> um, that can happen. And I have had that happen in games. And that's like, well, there's my major bad guy. Uh, I guess I'm coming up with something else for the rest of the evening. <laughs> Unless the bad guy's got luck too. Well, this is exactly why you give bad guys luck. Um, but then you end up with the DC Heroes problem. Uh-huh. Or Blood of Heroes as the last version of it was known. Uh, DC Heroes role-playing game, folks, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, this is the one by Mayfair Games uh, that came back out in the like late 80s and was used up until like the 90s or so. In the aughts, there was a new DC Heroes game, but that's completely different. And they renamed the old one Blood of Heroes. But anyway, mm-hmm. in that game, you have a thing called Hero Points that you can spend to modify your roles. And also to produce luck effects and produce in-game effects and stuff. Amazing things. Hero points are fantastic. The only problem is, is that it can very quickly turn into a who has more hero points is the one who's going to win uh, situation in, yeah. when the characters are fighting each other. So the villain has them and the hero has them and whoever has more is probably going to win that fight. Yeah. Well, that's that presents the... Uh... The problem, though, that there's a lot of games where that sort of thing is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Like if you're running any version of Call of Cthulhu, it yeah, it's, yeah, the the players aren't supposed to get a break. Although I thought Chaos Sim did have some, they had a luck stat. Yeah, they did. Uh, it's not as useful as it is in a lot of other games. It was mostly. If the players fucked up a stat, like a stat roll or a skill check, you could kind of... Oh, wait, no, there's a clue. Yeah. Okay, that's mostly what that was for. Okay. Yeah, um, it wouldn't let okay. you, like, escape death or and or madness very much. Right, and if I remember right, it was also uh, your magic stat, if I remember right, wasn't it? Oh, kind of. What happens is your magic... You have a power rating, which is like your, your, your willpower, basically. Mm-hmm. Your magic points start equal to your will to that, and your sanity points start equal to your luck, which is five times your uh, power. Mm-hmm. Except in the newest version, which is all percentiles, and then it just equals. Okay. Okay. Uh, but either way, you can't exactly spend luck in Chaosium to not die when Cthulhu shows up. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of it's there, but it's not one of the games where it gets a uh a lot of use mm-hmm. although okay. you could you could let them have a have a luck check but it, it it it's more the game master's discretion to be blunt actually i would argue that call cthulhu is a game that actually needs it i would actually do the opposite i would actually include i would be more inclined to include something more like fate points or something like that which are basically their extra lives is what they really are right. or that the or you know an extra role extra life um, something like that. That way, the players, uh, when they do encounter those like um, deep ones um, and are going to get completely mowed down and slaughtered, they spend a few fate points and they manage to escape. And the story continues on. Because keep in mind, even in most of Lovecraft's original stories, they may go nuts, but they do survive. A lot of the you know the humans around these situations do actually kind of survive because that's how the story is being told. Yeah, kind of in in a in in like a Lovecraft story, and mm-hmm. the game does kind of reflect this. You're more likely to lose your mind than you are to just outright die. 
See, that's my point. Yeah, I wouldn't would let the fate points affect. Sorry to go on, but I wouldn't affect. I wouldn't have the fate points affect sanity. I would affect have the only affect you know, not dying. Mm. Yeah, you can you can you can kind of do either because I think again that bumps into into the gamerism that uh, life and death are usually closer in a role playing game than a story, mm. and it's again that idea that especially if you're doing what's supposed to be a gritty action story or a horror story. Right. You want like the ultimate failure to always be present in some form because that keeps the edge on in the game. I can see that. I can see that totally. But if you want that experience, you just have to play original D&D and play a wizard. <laughs> kind of. Uh, with your one hit point. And I say that as a person <laughs> who actually played a wizard with one hit point. <laughs> I think I actually made it through most of the adventure too. Um, but anyway, all right. So yes, fate points, luck points, whatever you want to call them are definitely a gamerism. There's something outside that's being imposed on through the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. The players of course are aware of it, but the characters are not. Yeah. And that leads, sometimes it gets difficult because in a story I can do anything however I want. Cause ultimately I'm in control of it. Mm-hmm. In a game, you run into the the problems of of doing things to taste, and the problems of the players knowing the unwritten rules of the universe, and sometimes working to circumvent them. Yes, definitely. Because that's that's something. Um, a lot of games, especially in stranger genres, mm-hmm. always kind of struggle with a little bit, right? how do you impose things like if I'm running something that's supposed to be like an eighties horror movie style game, Mm -hmm. how do I make the players make bad choices? Because that's a big part of eighties horror movies. That's true. Yeah. I guess you would have to come up with some system where they're rewarded for making those bad choices, Mm -hmm. which has been done. Oh, I believe it has. Okay. What game did it? Oh, there's a bunch. Uh, Spectrum games is pretty good for doing that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've seen other games that actually reward you with like bonus XP for your next character for doing dumb stuff if it's appropriate to do dumb stuff. Mm-hmm. No, and that makes perfect sense. Um, and I've seen the opposite too. I've seen games with that to reward characters for uh, doing smart stuff as well. They get bonuses on their roles and everything if they're creative. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been a couple like basically kung fu type games or martial arts oriented games that have done that. There was one called Ninja Crusade that I played like a year or so back at a at a test gaming thing that uh, was actually like that. The more creative you were with your maneuvers, the more dice you got. So if you if you like you know said you were going to bounce off that wall and like fly kick that guy, you got bonuses for bouncing off the wall just because it's cinematic, not because it's actually good practical. Uh huh. And that that again goes with the idea that if you're doing like something that's supposed to be like the old Jopsaki movies. Mm-hmm. They always did crazy maneuvers, so you want to reward players who are going to keep in the spirit of things and do the over-the-top crazy maneuvers. Exactly, and that's what it simulated perfectly. I really have to give the game designers points for that. I wish I'd thought of that back in the day when I was trying <laughs> to simulate that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I usually use more traditional systems and try to jury-rig them to make it work, but it never quite did, and now I understand why. 
like having played that game, it's like, oh, Ninja Crusaders actually got it right, or Ninja Crusade, whatever it's called. I think it's actually called something else now. I think they changed the name with the second edition, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll put a link in the show notes so people can go check it out. It's pretty fun, though. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so what's your third one, then? You said you had three. The third one is, um, it comes down to uh, Code of Conduct. Mm-hmm. Most notably, the idea of uh, superhero games that, the players don't kill the bad guy Mm -hmm. because that for the longest time was a running trope in superhero stories. Yes, it was. And then, yeah. And and then you need something that enforces that because in a role-playing game, the players are usually just out to like slaughter the bad guys. Yeah. Well, because that's the logical thing to do. I mean, in the original comics, you didn't do that because a it saved you on having to keep bringing back the villain or coming coming up with excuses why they're not dead, mm-hmm. um, and so you didn't have to come up with new villains all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, so so it was a very practical reason, and it also made the heroes look more upstanding, like good guys and everything like that. But in a game, it's more like the Japanese stuff, whereas the Japanese you know manga and anime, it's like kill the villain, hell yeah, and um, that you know that they they kill their villains. That's what they do because why would you let them live? That would be stupid. They're just going to come yeah. and kill your family if you don't. Yeah, and, and part of that too for like uh, American superheroes comes out of the silver age when you had the comic code where you were expressly like forbidden from killing somebody exactly exactly and then it and, gets hmm? oh go ahead and pre-code comics the heroes usually did kill the villain the villains usually died at the end of pre-code comic stories yeah or they had what later became and then this became a trope the quote-unquote mysterious death yeah that was pretty common that's true yeah where you fall into a vat of acid but it doesn't kill you it just gives you more powers kind of thing yeah 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 a lot of villains died, yeah, mysterious deaths. You're right. Yep, mm-hmm. that's true. Because it gave you that option. The first, uh, I think the first example of, of what you're kind of getting at was the Joker. Okay. Like when the Joker very first appears in a Batman comic, he dies at the end of the story. Because like you said, this was like the early superheroes where eh, he's a villain, but he's he's a dead villain. Well, that's exactly right. Because they came out of the pulp heroes. Yep. And the pulp heroes massacred their villains. There was no <laughs> holding back with the pulp heroes. No, there was not. <laughs> like it was it was like Westerns, which were also pulp heroes and had you 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 mowed down crime with a machine mm-hmm. gun. That's what you did. <laughs> It was and so it, it that just makes sense. Right. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. yeah, you're right. The Joker had a mysterious death, if I remember right. And then well, he it goes the on opposite. from there. The Joker oh? had the, because he was kind of the first one where they, the, the, as I understand it, the, uh, the editor at the time thought that this was a great character. Okay. And said, you can't kill him. So there's like an extra half page added where he's being like driven away in the ambulance and one of the attendant goes, my God, he's not dead. And then the ambulance crashes and he escapes or something. Oh, okay. I have to go back and read that. Wow. It's been a long time. And that's like the first, it's not a mysterious death. It's a mysterious life, but it kind of sets up that, that idea that right. you can, you can have both. I can kill the villain and then just, aha, but I got better later on. Yeah, exactly. But then eventually, thanks to the comics code, it just becomes, you just can't kill them. You Spider-Man just leaves them tied up, separated from their equipment or whatever for the cops to just haul away. Yeah, and then it gets complicated because you get to the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. 
the the 70s essentially and we've talked about how entertainment in the 70s changes and that's where you get like your exploitation films and things mm-hmm. get dark and gritty and you have them kind of half-assing that in a lot of superhero stories sort of yeah like it's it's the idea because at that time you get heroes like that's mm-hmm. the uh conan gets popular and there's a lot of rip-offs right so you've got these sword and sorcery characters who are murdering people but on panel they're doing it in really weird vague kind of ways yeah yeah so you'll see like conan on the backswing and the villain going uh and then he's like falls over dead but there's no marks on him kind of thing yeah yeah well he'll just be a vague shadow bump in the background won't he a lot of times too yeah you'd you'd, you'd get that mm-hmm. um a lot of the superhero books would start doing that that you didn't have the heroes kill people but the villains started killing people but because you were still under the code again it would be these weird kind of half-assed i guess he's dead kind of things. yeah yeah they had to imply it more than show it yeah yeah and it kind of muddies things up, especially because everything's moving towards that, like, darker, grittier kind of, you know, brutal thing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Kind of. Kind of. There are limits to what they could do. And then we get the, eventually we'll get the um, Iron Age with Image and Friends. And that will get thrown out the window because everyone's Wolverine, so everyone has to die. Yeah. And And even then, when you get to the 80s, it gets cleaned up again because what we know in game terms as superhero code against killing mm-hmm. really comes to the fore, I think in the eighties, because that's when you have what was a trope brought about mm-hmm. decades earlier by the code. It becomes solidified that you have heroes that outright will just say, I do not kill people. I will not kill people. And they start building stories around that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much all heroes have a code versus killing except for Wolverine kind of sort of, in the uh depending on who's writing it and depending on which book it is um in you know that that's pretty much it you're right 80 mm-hmm. early 80s heroes are code versus killing all the way which is why that's an actual thing in the champions role-playing game mm-hmm. V i think has it nope uh V does what a lot of superhero games do that it's not a code but if you kill the villain you don't get the experience for bringing them in right okay that's a good way to do it yeah. and then I, Oh, sorry. I was going to say, didn't the Marvel superheroes game, the phase rip one, didn't you lose your karma for the game if you killed? Yep. Marvel and DC did that where in DC you have hero points, Marvel you get karma. They work like luck. Mm-hmm. If you kill a villain, you basically lose all of your points. Yeah. And then Mar- even the banked ones. And then Marvel explained it, that that was like how you'd see in the comic. If like the hero killed somebody, they'd like mope about, mope about it for a few issues. Yeah. Yeah. That that's what that represented, your hero being thrown off their game by doing this horrible thing, and that's mm-hmm. why you lose all your karma and stuff. Right, yep, yep. And possibly popularity. Yeah, that's true too. Which and that totally worked. Those games were really good. They actually really did cover the genres and everything really well. They they did. Um some do it better than others. Mm-hmm. I have a little list of, of different games that I think are important in that respect. Oh, Let's hear it. Okay. Well, um, what we can start with, because we've already mentioned a few. Right. Mostly superhero stuff. Because super, superheroes, I think, are the first genre that, for role-playing games, when they got around to covering them, mm-hmm. the superhero as a subgenre of like science fiction and fantasy was really well-defined. Mm-hmm. 
And then that put pressure on the games to find ways to simulate that. Yeah, yeah. They were definitely trying to simulate the feel and tone and style and everything of those superhero comics. Mm -hmm. Well, eventually, because if you think to the very, very, very early superhero games, they were still very game. Oh, they were, like Superhero 2044, for example. Yeah. Or... Um, and the early V&V and the early champions were very much just, here's a bunch of rules, and instead of fighting orcs, you're fighting supervillains. Yeah, there's, well, what was the Chaosium one? Superworld. Was that Superworld? That was Superworld, yeah. Okay, yeah, that was, again, it's, it's, it's basically, I'm still out there, you know, murdering villains, but yeah, I'm doing it with weird powers. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was using the Chaosium system, right? Yeah. So you were using the same system for superheroes that you did for Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> Which leads to some interesting effects. <laughs> it did. It did indeed. It, it was a pretty brutal game. Mm. Not quite as brutal as the GURPS one. GURPS Supers is super brutal, but, you know, yeah. whatever. Well, yeah, because the other thing you run into there, and that leads to certain gamisms, was the idea that both of them are fairly realistic systems. Mm-hmm. And superheroes are not. Not at all. And you gotta find ways, because I remember when we played GURPS Supers here, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, we added extra traits. Weren't you using... Oh, it's been so long. Um... I vaguely remember something. Well, I vaguely remember we're using the stun rules that GURPS came up with where yep. you could, where you could, yeah, where basically you got five times your hit points or health or five times your health in these extra points instead of using your regular health as hit points, basically. Yeah. And then we added traits. Uh, we added a, a superhero trait that let you use bank XP. Mm hmm. In the same way that, like, Marvel and DC would use hero points and cards. I remember that. Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah. That was mm. a great idea. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, I remember I used it for my some of my GURPS games later on, too. Yeah. Because you need that. Because, again, in a superhero game, you always get the scene where, like, the hero's just got his ass kicked. But he's like, must fight, save friends. Blah! And all of a sudden, for a couple of panels, he's twice as macho as he was, you know, yeah. ever before. And you need mm. a way to simulate because that's part of the genre. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Okay, that works. So what else you got? I think the first game mm -hmm. that you have to kind of look at is good old Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. And so? I, mean, I mean old Dungeons and Dragons. We're going like AD&D and earlier. Okay. Because D&D kind of, it's the first role-playing game and they're trying to simulate the sword and sorcery genre. Yes, they are. But the game is loaded with a lot of gamisms. Mm -hmm. And those gamisms become tropes for gaming for decades after. Because it's the foundation for all role-playing games that come after it. Yeah. Um, one of the best examples of that would be character classes. Mm -hmm. That that's a gamism that becomes almost like a trope, even in other stories. And, and because if you look at, at certain sorcery at the time, it didn't work quite the way character classes in D&D work. Right. But character classes were a really convenient way to set up a game-related ecosystem so that a fighter fights, a magic user magics, clerics are kind of in between. Mm -hmm. Later on, you add thieves in that. But the character classes have abilities much, much more defined than any character in any kind of story. Right. Yeah, it's true. 
And that leads to a lot of gaming tropes. Like uh, probably the most famous one is that magic users can only carry a dagger. They can't use a sword. Mm -hmm. There's no real good story reason. Case in point, probably the greatest fantasy wizard ever, Gandalf, carried a sword. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but but in the game, if if a magic user could do that, it kind of takes away some of the fighter's thunder. Except the fact that the magic users can't wear armor and they have like terrible hit points. So they would be Hmm. pretty stupid to actually go in there with the sword. They would, but at some point they won't have a choice. And yeah, that's true. Again, there's no in world reason for it other than Nope. Just cause. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Hmm. I, I, there, it's definitely just a gamerism that, uh, yeah. Magic users are supposed to carry staffs at best. And of course, as I said, can't wear armor either. Yeah, and it's it works great game-wise, mm-hmm. but when you're translating it to other stuff, it gets wonky. And in the years that follow, mm-hmm. other game worlds and even other like fantasy worlds in like, movies and comics and books, magic users can't wear armor or carry, like, carry swords. And yeah. y- you get some kind of retroactive explanations. Mm-hmm. That always tend to be a little wonky, strictly because it's strictly a gameism. It it yeah. doesn't have any kind of literary equivalent. It was just meant for balance within the game. Yeah, yeah. And then because D anD D became the template of fantasy for so many people, you start seeing that idea getting into other things. Right. Yeah. So eventually, well, yeah, eventually, pretty much all fantasy after AD anD D. Is AD&D in one form or another, at least almost yeah. all Western fantasy. Yeah, true. Even to the point another D&D gameism that became a trope mm-hmm. is the Wandering Monster. Yes, that's true. That if you look at like 80 sword and sorcery movies, there's always a scene where mm-hmm. they run into it. You're like, that's a Wandering Monster. Yeah, yeah. It'll be like a camp of thieves or like giant beetles jump out of the trees at them or something it's 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 the D wandering monster yeah but again it's just there because it's interesting and it was a chance for the players to have fun and earn xp yep and when when and when and it represented the idea too of an active world yeah it was a way for the the world to not seem totally mathematically structured mm-hmm. so it enters the game as a way of simulating a story thing. It becomes a trope. That trope spills out into into other things so that there's mm-hmm. there's always a wandering monster in, in a sword and sorcery film. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Actually, another one that pops up is Dungeons. Ah, yeah. okay. <laughs> now, I don't know if you were planning on to talk about that one, but the very idea of a dungeon as a place you're exploring in that, what the hell? Like, that's... <laughs> That that makes no lie, especially a dungeon that's filled with various monsters that somehow don't kill each other and are just kind of <laughs> hanging out and playing cards and drinking or whatever. It's like, why? Like, why are these things all here? Like, wh- who would leave that giant spider over there? No, I mean, why would this? Ah, why is why is there a dragon <laughs> back there? Would, why didn't it eat all these orcs and the giant spider? It's like, eh, just cause. And. Yeah, and- that's carried on even worse than the Japanese stuff, I got to tell you. But anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you're right. See, I never even thought of that. But you are right. Because you did have uh, dungeons and sword and sorcery. Mm-hmm. But they weren't D&D. Like, everybody remembers uh, 
in Lord of the Rings when they go through the Mines of Moria. Mines of Moria, yeah. Which is basically what I think they're supposed to kind of simulate. Yeah, it is. But even then, we didn't get... We didn't spend a lot of time there. We didn't... They weren't exploring every single room and checking for traps and stuff. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you go to, like, the pulp stuff. Like, Conan was always running into, like, underground tombs and that. But he didn't stick around. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah, it wasn't this idea that, I know there's another treasure in here. Let's... Let's go find it. Exactly. So it's very much a trope thing. Now, I know why they did it, of course. TSR, remember, originally uh, they would have maps and things. So it was mm. basically, it's a environment for your characters to go adventuring in and and to kind of loosely explain why there's all these monsters and to set things up so it's got a little bit dangerous and creepy and everything like that. It's, yeah, it, it's just a, it's just a place for the characters to explore and have fun in. I get yeah. it, but it's still like pretty unrealistic. Like, you know, what the hell? And but it just became a fantasy trope. And yeah. then it's, after a certain point, it, they're always there. And then now, role playing games and such always have uh, computer role playing games often will have dungeons, mm-hmm. and yeah. even light novels do and such. It's <laughs> like, well, okay, um. All right. I, although I will admit the light novel versions are usually more interesting, like the ones that come from the Japanese and Korean and that light novels, mm-hmm. because in a surprising number of them, the dungeons are treated like mines, but not exactly like mines of Moria because the monsters, the randomly occurring monsters, all have like natural magical gems or their, their corpses are worth money. Right. So parties of adventurers go into these mines basically to find the monsters, to kill them, because they're the thing that's worth money. It's not randomly occurring treasure. They're there for the monsters. It is, an, and that's, that's um, more progression. Because mm-hmm. that kind of buys into the video game trope of when I stab you, you turn into a gold coin. Yep. Yep, that's true. And it's it's an attempt to add more um, depth, and not if not realism, then plausibility to an old I trope. I go with plausibility. Thought and plausibility. Yeah. It's just like, oh, that's okay. That's That's one way to do it. And that I guess that kind of makes sense, and so you kind of just go with it. Yeah, because dungeons are are they're like you say they're weird, they're creepy, they're also a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to run a game set in a dungeon because exactly, yeah. And it's it's the kind of thing like when D anD D first started, what I didn't realize until they reissued the white the the white box books mm-hmm. was the D anD D worlds had this kind of unstated thing that. Every dungeon master had a dungeon Mm -hmm. and you were always adding to it and revising it, but it wasn't like what came later when you get to say like the uh, red box basic and that Mm -hmm. where the world is just littered with dungeons that somebody went around and left all over the place. Right. Right. So it's, it's again, it's not exactly more realistic. It's Mm -hmm. strictly a game convention, but there was this kind of idea because you were coming at it more from game, it would be more similar to like a video game. Because mm-hmm. the video games were always based around solving one dungeon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was at this, yeah, this weird kind of thing that gets blown out of proportion. And then around the time when you get to the early 80s, you did start seeing a lot of articles where people would talk about that. Why is this dungeon here? Why are these monsters here? Mm-hmm. And that's where you start seeing that kind of, that change up that they start designing ecosystems for them and they start kind of coming up with history and a logic for why it's here kind of thing yep absolutely true yep i agree and so 
actually, uh, there's a couple other D&D ones. Did you have some more? Those are the main ones. Like, what ones are you thinking of? Hit points. Yeah. Hit, po- hit points themselves are a gamerism. Yep, that becomes a trope later on. That becomes a trope later on. The, I- the idea that you have this generic pool of damage that you can take that represents how long you can stay in the fight. And in fact, it leads to another one that always drove me even more nuts. Hit points I was kind of okay with. I always thought it was a little odd, but okay, sure, whatever. Um, but the one that, really, that it leads to that really got me is what would best be described as uh, the zero-sum game. Uh-huh. Where players are always basically playing until they have like one or two hit points left. Which is something that the character would have no concept of whatsoever. Right. The character doesn't know how much you know damage they've taken. They don't know how much they can take. But the player does, and so the player's like, "Well, I've got you know twenty three hit points, and I know that that I know that goblin can only have five, so therefore I can just walk right up and smack it, <laughs> and or and I can keep fighting until I die." Mm-hmm. Like, there's no idea of like morale. Like, I remember being shocked when I read that an actual real life armies when they sustain like about twenty percent damage. They're usually, they rout usually. By that point, if the army loses 20% of its still manpower or whatever, a lot of armies just turn and run. Mm-hmm. Like, that that's pretty catastrophic. It's like, which, you in a, in a game or that? No, armies fight until literally, like, every single last one of them is dead. Or yeah. fallen or something. Like, that's that, that's how that's how groups fight. <laughs> and, and, but there's no sense of self-preservation. And there's no sense of self-preservation on the part of the enemies. And there's no sense of self-preservation on the part of the player characters either. Mm-hmm. These characters that logically should try to you know, stay alive and have self-preservation, nope, none of that stuff. They just fight until they die. Yeah, you know Which where you is something see no living creature does. Sorry, you, almost no living creature. Go. True. You know where you see that spill over into other media? Mm-hmm. Where? 80s action movies. Poster boys for hit points. Yeah, where, where the bad guy like machine guns down all the 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 dudes except our hero gets like usually like a a scratch on his shoulder Mm -hmm. yep or you know it dirties his clothes and he's got a few scratches that's about it and that's there to represent the fact that yeah he's kind of taken damage but we know he really didn't yeah and and it's also the idea too like you were saying the zero-sum game comes up where no matter how injured the hero is Mm-hmm. It doesn't affect his performance. Not in the slightest, no. Even the idea, like, that was a thing in Die Hard that they thought, he cut his feet up, like, running through the broken glass. Yeah, and then he kicks through a plate glass window and chases down a bad guy. It didn't affect them. Nope, not in the slightest. It looked nice. It was, like, really, ew, you know, cringy. But to watch him, you know, run over that broken glass. But, but yeah, the it doesn't actually affect them at all. Like, they can be down to one hit point, which should leave them a bloody mess, and they're still fighting at maximum ability. Mm-hmm. Now, you could say that's heroic. You could say that's, you know, fantasy standard and all that. Okay, fine. If you want to go with that, that's fine. But that's kind of... That's definitely a trope. That's a gamerism. That It doesn't really work like that. Yeah, the the explanation they, they gave in D&D for that was hit points aren't actually how much damage you're taking. They're like okay. your endurance. Okay. So the reason that they're going down as you fight is because you're deflecting blows and you're getting less than telling hits and you're getting weaker and tired and eventually you're tired enough that that guy gets in and gets that shot in and finally finishes you off. Right. Okay. 
which it kind of, yeah, okay, I can kind of see that, but then it begs the question about what about if he gets a lucky shot at the beginning? Like, there's no way of doing that. Nope. But that would be unheroic, right? The idea yeah. that that you know that you walk out into the battlefield looking cool, and then the you know the the little goblin with a sling bings you in the middle of the eyes and kills you, mm-hmm. <laughs> which could happen in Rollmaster. There are games where that could actually happen, um, but it's not very heroic and not very fun. Yeah, and it it shows that idea that very early role playing games very quickly were trying to retcon the mechanics to fit the stories. Mm-hmm. And they would kind of fudge the concept of the stories to fit to to fit the mechanics. Right. That D&D was a great game. It was a lot of fun. It didn't quite simulate the source material. And participants were always kind of aware of that. And were always looking for a way to simulate the source material as well as provide a game. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And that... And... It had a weird thing, though, where it actually created this creative avenue for the players because no one was exactly satisfied with the way D&D played. And so it produced endless discussions and endless um, people working on how to improve it. And everyone had their own homebrew rules about Mm -hmm. how it was really supposed to work because the original rules were so flawed that everyone had to fix them in some way. Yeah, flawed and incomplete because everybody would then come up with something and and this is why if you look at different editions of the game, they would add really arbitrary mechanics. Mm-hmm. So I have a strength rating and I want to knock in a door. Well, because somebody added doors to their dungeon. So now I have a stat derived from my strength where I roll a d6. Can I open a door? Mm-hmm. You get to AD&D, like, well, Conan, like, snapped out of his, his shackles and bent the bars of the cage and took off. So now right. they add... Ben Bard's lift gates becomes an actual stat derived from strength. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And for some reason, it's a percentage, whereas open door is a D6 and your strength is rolled as 3D6. And and it's because you're getting all of these ideas that people are seeing something in a story and going, that'd be great in my game. And your first generation of role-playing games were designed very specifically to cover very specific actions for this yeah. very specific kind of story or genre. Very true. And so you had to kind of homebrew and fudge it to make it work with anything else. Yeah. But that leads later on, when you get mm-hmm. to like your, your second wave of role-playing games, it leads to people being more aware of the concept of, of story and setting and games being written around that a little more. Right. Well, people understood that there was now a difference between rea- the gaming reality and the world that the characters were in. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, we're starting to get more simulationist stuff, thanks to, as you said, superhero games. Mm. So I would argue that most of the superhero games came out as second-generation games. And so they under kind of understood the difference between them at that point, between uh, game logic and setting logic, and they started to work about how can we make the game play more like a superhero comic book. Yeah, I'm going to say that something happens first. Okay. That affects it. And the first game I can think of that's really designed to simulate like a genre more than a game. Mm-hmm. was Call of Cthulhu. 
Okay, I can see that. Because it's a horror game, and they're trying to represent these horror stories. And that's why they added the idea of, like, your ever-diminishing sanity and and such. Because that's how Lovecraft wrote. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to fudge it a bit, because the first game I can think of, which is like a one-and-a-half-generation horror game, mm-hmm. that I think really looked at the idea of doing a horror story was the original Chill. Yeah, I figured you were going to say that. Okay, go. And I, it, it's the first game I saw that, again, Cthulhu's a great game. It does a really good job, but it's still very game-oriented. Mm-hmm. Whereas Chill, you start seeing them embracing horror, but some of the less logical and even silly aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Can you give examples? Yeah, the best examples I can think of, there's kind of two. One is the idea that if I have a weapon... It doesn't matter what I've got. <laughs> okay. Like, damage, like combat works, damage is either armed or unarmed. Right. So if I'm punching you, you'll run out of stamina before you take a serious wound, which means I'm more li- very much more likely to knock you out without doing permanent damage. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm attacking you with an implement, I'm more likely to do wounds and I'm more likely to kill you. And it doesn't matter. A gun, a machete, half a bottle... And dropping a truck on you all works exactly the same. Okay. And it really fits the horror idea because in a lot of horror stories, you'll see that. You'll see the guy get stabbed with a knife and he dies, usually over dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can shoot the guy and he's like, Ugh, and the mad scientist falls down and he's he's dead. It reflects that idea of combat uh, more as not not really a thing. Mm-hmm. it's more like a plot point than it is the actual like an actual event well, yeah because combat in horror movies really doesn't matter <laughs> yeah it's short it's ugly and it's you know fatal usually for the heroes yeah or or the villain if it's the end of the uh yeah if it's the, the end of the story movie. for the villain yeah exactly but they also did something that i thought was great was that a lot of the monsters have powers that uh, reflect different tropes that you were already seeing in like horror movies and that. Okay. And this is the first time I, and, and they weren't practical gamery functional kind of things. Mm-hmm. And it would be like the ever popular haywire. If okay. The what's monster, that? If the monster has the haywire power and they use it, then just all your tech stops working. Okay. Your, your, your radio fuzzes out, your car won't start, your gun jams, whatever. Right. Because that was always a big trope in like horror movies that you know you can never start your car when right. the monster's well, yeah. coming. Yeah, and your phone never your phone runs out of power and whatever. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and your electronics never work in a horror game ever. Yep, and it, and it well, and a lot of them they would, but this was the first time I saw them actively simulating the movies. Because in in like a movie, it's a plot contrivance. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. If the if the hero can start his car, he just drives away from Jason, and now we don't have a movie. Well, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So if the car just for whatever reason doesn't start, and then it starts with the idea that the first time it happens, the guy's got an old shitty car and it just won't work. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. But then every single horror movie does this and it becomes a trope. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And 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 again, Chill was the first game I saw that was really kind of looking into that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That they were really... They were they weren't kind of shying away from 
the tropes of the medium mm-hmm. to make a better game. They made a game that totally embraced all of that. Right. Makes sense. Okay. And I would suggest that, uh, let's see, I guess the, yeah, so that would kind of predate some of the second generation superhero games I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I could see that. Mm-hmm. Cause that was always the, uh, the difficulty in like, you're, cause, cause superheroes people were focusing on like the action. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was because this was the bronze age that role-playing games started in. Mm. they were okay with that, like you said, that some zero thing, that I could beat the villain till he dies, because we were seeing that kind of thing coming back in the comics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Huh. So, Chill, all right. Is... How did Chill, out of curiosity, handle the idea of the heroes dying or not dying? I mean, technically, you know, you can't wipe out your entire party in a... (laughs) In a role-playing game, you can, but it's going to get messy. It does. They they kind of sidewaysedly explain how it should work, because there's a lot of adventures that they publish that start with, you get a message that the previous group sent to investigate hasn't been heard from and are all probably dead. Mm -hmm. So you guys go in, and, and that was, you work for a secret society in the game. Right, okay. And that's how they 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 explain why the players are looking for monsters as they get these missions. And yeah, you, Oh, you can totally kill off an entire party and chill. It's, it's not real hard. (laughs) It's a horror game after all. And then the next party goes in, finds, picks up where the other guys left off and off they go. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. That's, that's one way to do it. Although chill generally plays like I've always called it the hammer house of horror role-playing game. Mm Mm-hmm. So in any game, if you've got a group of four to six people, mm-hmm. you will probably lose a couple. Mm-hmm. But the mechanics in that are set up that if they're not dumb or really unlucky, they'll probably figure out what's going on and how to beat the monster. And it won't be a total party kill. It'll just be like a partial party kill. Right, right. Which is good for a horror game because you yeah. need that that danger. Otherwise, it's not horror. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm hunting mutants. Yeah. Well, that's true. (laughs) That's very true. There's another game that I think is important to the, uh, to the concept. Okay. Which game is that? That comes out around the same time would be Toon. Oh yes. Toon is also definitely one that's simulating the tropes. No question on that. Mm. Yeah. Cause they're trying to do like the old, uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yes, they are, which was a really odd choice. I always thought that was a bizarre choice for a role-playing game. I really did. Yeah, it is, but it isn't, but it is. Why would you want to simulate those? Like, I I guess this is just... I mean, I grew up with the Bug Bunny cartoons, well, you know, watching reruns like everyone of our generation, and okay, yeah, I enjoyed them and everything, but I just don't want to play the Roadrunner or the Coyote or any of those characters. Like, the idea of playing characters like that just is not funny to me. Like, it just right. doesn't appeal, but that's just me. I think I'm just weird that way. Maybe maybe for other people, it's much more entertaining. No, I think you're kind of right, because Toon has always been one of those, like, cult games. Yes, definitely. And I think because in a role-playing game, comedy is really, t- it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And it's because... If the participants were funny, they'd be doing stand-up instead of wasting time playing a game. Very true. 
And the biggest problem with a comedic role-playing game is comedy is self-depreciating. Mm-hmm. And most gamers are playing to win. Yeah. In a role-playing game, you're generally playing with a clear goal and you're trying to accomplish that goal. Mm-hmm. That's not what's happening in Tune. No, no, it's a, and it and it's not just that though. It's also the idea that you can win by failing, mm-hmm. which goes against like every role playing game instinct. ever. <laughs> yeah, like instinct, because that's notably the idea that in tune I can succeed at a stupid action by failing an intelligence check. Yeah. Like, if I botch my smarts roll, I'm too dumb to realize my plan won't work, which means it works, because that's how it works in cartoons. That is so bizarre. It is, and and Tuna's the first game that really starts that idea of, of, of playing the trope. Mm-hmm. Like, Chill acknowledges them for horror, but in tune, again, plus because of the nature of it, because of how comedy cartoons and that work, they're really trying to not just put you in a certain frame of mind. They're trying to set up a whole different set of laws of physics that are inhingent on that idea of the player understanding the universe in a way the character does not. Right. Which sounds way more philosophical than it should. But yeah, that's that's yeah, why I think... Yeah, it does. <laughs> but that's why I think Tune is 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 important because I think it's it's one of the first games that really looked at that. Mm-hmm. Like even the horror games like Cthulhu or Chill are simulating the tropes, but they're simulating it within the world and they're presenting it in a way that it's more of a feature than a trope. Mm-hmm. Like if I can't start my car in Chill. I got a good idea there's a monster around. Right. Like, I'm aware the monsters can bend reality. I may not, as the player or the character, understand how or what exactly they're doing, but I know they can do that. I know that they can change the whole feel of Mm -hmm. the environment just by by showing up. Right. Like, happens in a horror movie. Gets all creepy and shit, and there's Mm -hmm. powers that let them do that. Whereas Toon was the first one where... It's a universe that works differently from how the characters can ever know because it depends more on the real world's interpretation of what's going on in their world. Mm-hmm. That sounds kind of complicated. It is. And then a couple of years later, you get a game that I think really brings that idea home in a way that becomes meaningful for gamers. Which is? That was DC Heroes. Okay, which we've already mentioned. Yeah. Marvel's a really good superhero game. Mm-hmm. And it simulates the comics really well, but DC is the first one, especially second edition. Mm-hmm. First edition added the idea of, of hero points that let you screw around with stuff. Uh, they added the ideas of column shifts and pushing. Mm-hmm. Which meant that if I get a lucky enough roll, my character can punch out Superman even though I'm just a normal hot dog vendor. Right. Don't hold your breath on that happening. Right. But But it's theoretically possible. And it acknowledges that idea in superhero comics. Mm -hmm. It's um, what you refer to as my power and what Chad refers to as the elf effect. 
Mm-hmm. The idea being that if the plot, as as Chad explained it, if the plot requires Alf punch out Superman, then somehow Alf is just going to punch out Superman. Yeah, yeah. And it leads to craziness. Second edition adds to that the actual concept of genres. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the first game that did that, that it solidified the tropes into a playable form. Right. And and that was the idea, if you recall, that if you're playing like um like the the I forget what's what's one step before the action genre because the action genre is what they call like your typical eighties comic. Mm-hmm. Where Superman can like punch the Joker through a brick wall and the Joker just looks up and goes, Yeah, did you get the number of that bus and passes out? Like Right, yeah. Even though all the laws of physics say he's dead now. Well, remember DC has the whole idea of it was it bashing combat and killing yep. combat? Yep, and if I don't declare killing combat in all but one of the genres, I can just not kill you. Like yeah. I can use my full power and you just won't die. You'll take enough damage to just put you before that point. Yeah, exactly. You will automatically stop at zero, basically. You'll never yeah. go into the negatives, which is what would kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that was it was the comedy genre before that where I just you just can't kill anybody no matter what you do. Right. There is no killing combat. Yeah, ever at all. Right. Okay. And th- and then they tweak it so they do stuff that fits more of like the 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 80s, late 80s, early 90s style comic where mm-hmm. there's a genre rule that if I punch you, it's it's bashing combat. Mm-hmm. If I shoot at you, it's automatically killing combat unless right, yeah. unless I use like the uh the called shot mm-hmm. or the pulling the punch rule. Which gives me a penalty, but I'm going for non-lethal attacks kind of thing. Right, exactly. And it's it's the first game that really did uh, combine all of that concept of feature and trope and gameism, really, into something usable by the participants. Yep, and that's why I consider DC Heroes one of the best games ever, yep. literally. I think that uh, at least... If you want that style of game, it's fantastic. It really mm-hmm. is. I even used it to run like Star Trek campaigns. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It worked fine. They were very action-adventure oriented, but, you know, it, it, it still worked fine. Mm-hmm. You, you, could, you could run sci-fi. You can run pretty much anything with it. And you can tweak how it feels to make it pitch perfect for whatever you want. So, yeah. No, no. DC is perfect. It's not good for realistic but if you want something that's like get really tropey, it's perfect. Yeah, well, for any any kind of like action adventure story, the rules are are because because again, you can tweak them, mm. like you were saying to 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 fit any kind of action oriented story you'd, you'd possibly want to play. Exactly. Yep. And I think in a weird kind of way, mm-hmm. DC Heroes is probably if not the first step, a very early step towards the more narrativist style game. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's taking that idea of story as a process. Yeah. That it's not just about the action. It's not just about the characters. The way the story unfolds is part of the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And so we're not trying to simulate reality here. We're trying to simulate an amusing or at least interesting and entertaining story. 
Yeah, and and as a story. Mm, exactly, as a story, not as an actual event. Mm-hmm. And so I agree. No, I'm with you 100%. And um, DC, I, were there actually horror rules? Was there a horror genre on that list? Yep, they did, because they did a, um, for second edition, there's a magic book. Right. And it covers their horror, because remember, it's basically the Ver- Vertigo supplement for yeah, DC yeah. Heroes. Hmm. And they cover horror and they cover the feel because that was um, the comics at the time. Their magic was horror. Yeah. That that it, it was it was because the, the idea was that magic always took something from you. I mean, not always. I mean, because Dr. Fate wasn't horror. His style of magic wasn't that. And he had his villains and such. I mean, Zantana, for example, she wasn't a horror mage. She wasn't doing engaging in horror magic. Not in like the Bronze Age, but when you get to the modern age, they kind of... That was after... That's post, true. Post-crisis, that was what they, they codified it as. Yeah, that's true. Okay, valid point. Valid point. So that was where they got that. Because even if you look back, like Zantana wasn't a horror character... But she lost her father as part of getting her abilities in that. That's true. And Very that true. was, they worked that in that that was part of this idea that magic isn't free, that the universe calls for balance. Right, right. Yeah. And part of what they did too during that era was they brought the hosts of the uh, 70s horror comics right into the DC universe proper. Mm-hmm. And they became like mystic characters and that again was where i think a lot of the idea of magic equals horror started coming from yeah yeah that's true yep and it still continues to this day i mean in at least in the dc universe magic definitely still has a kind of a dark horror edge to it yeah depending on how they're playing at the time but it always tends to lean that way because that was Mm -hmm. like i say post-crisis that was how they'd set that up right very true. Very true. Okay. So, but so yes, uh, short version. We absolutely adore the DC heroes role playing <laughs> game. Both of us do. Um, I gained my adoration from Dawn, but you know, I eventually was converted to the church of DC. It's true. We should do a, our top 10 favorite games episode at some point. <laughs> we probably should actually. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll get around to it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because yeah, no, that, but let's both be honest. DC is probably in the top three for both of us. It's up there. Top three it, or top five for me, but it's definitely way up there. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, save that for another episode. Um, and <laughs> we'll, maybe we'll get some, a guest or two on just to add a little more variety and flavor to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that could be fun. All right. So, um, so DC definitely did that. And yeah. what follows DC then? Do you think in terms of like uh, genre busting games? I would think that what the next one that really kind of plays on that idea of trope as part of the experience would be Mm -hmm. uh, Mage. Oh, interesting. Okay, why? Uh, Mage, for anybody who's never never played, the uh, the idea is reality is consensual. Mm -hmm. We have gravity because everybody thinks we have gravity. And what happened was back in like the 1600s, the the nominal bad guys of the setting, who are the technocracy, ended up winning. They like imparted or enforced this this concept of reality based on technology. Mm-hmm. 
and technology is actually just a form of magic because mm-hmm. again magic being part of of the concept that because reality is consensual you can change it yes but they solidified it the mages in the game that you play are people who because their soul is 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 stronger can change reality on their own mhm that and to facilitate that they belong to different schools of thought called the traditions mm-hmm. and each tradition is modeled on a certain kind of of magic so there's the the uh there's basically the order of hermes mm-hmm. who are are your like what we consider like your mystic you know golden right. bow kind of guys yep they're European magicians yep yeah there's the the verbena who are your like earth goddess celtic you know druidic kind of guys there's the Akashic Brotherhood who are like your stereotypical Asian mystics, things like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Where the game plays up the idea of trope is when your character does a magic effect, you have to explain how they're doing it. Right. And you have to filter it not just through the mechanics, but through the perception of your character. Hmm. And this was why a lot of people when the game came out had a hell of a time playing mm-hmm. because like let's say i want to hit you with a lightning bolt right the mechanics game wise are the same but how i explain my character doing it differs so if i'm like one of the the verbena mm-hmm. i basically call to the sky gods and like a bolt of lightning comes down and strikes you mm-hmm. um if i'm one of the hermetic order I cast like a Harry Potter-esque spell and a bolt of lightning shoots from my hand and hits you. Right. If I'm like one of the Sons of Ether who are your steampunk guys, I pull out my lightning pistol and shoot you with it. Right. And it was difficult for, for a lot of players to not just come up with the rules for it, but to be able to dress it up and present it in a way that made sense to their character. Actually, when you put it that way... Mage isn't the first game that did that, actually. Champions was. Because Champions, which of course came back out in the, well, the first edition was late 70s, but Champions was based all around the idea that the powers that you had, that was just the effect, but you had to come up with a special effect to go along with your lightning. So a lightning power, if you bought, say, Energy Blast, Energy Blast was energy blast but then you as a player had to come up with what it looked like like was it you know earth was it pieces of earth rising up and attacking your enemy was it a lightning bolt shooting from your hand or from the sky was it someone pulling out a pistol just like you said all those things and in fact that was something that champions players struggled with a lot Mm -hmm. was the idea that well to how much does the special effect was as champions would call it which is basically how it presents in the world how important is that and does it do extra things or not and and because a lot of players would just say oh it's an energy blast but they wouldn't they couldn't they had a real trouble conceiving of the idea that no that's the result but what does it actually look like right just like mage so champions was doing that back way like a decade or so before mage came out but and again and it was also it's a thing that many champions players i noticed really struggled with too yeah, except Champions does it backwards. Okay. Because if I'm a reincarnated sorcerer who casts a lightning bolt, mm-hmm. when I spend those points on that that power and I just define that effect, 
Mm -hmm. I'm a wizard casting a lightning bolt. Right. In Mage, your character only thinks he's a wizard casting a lightning bolt. In the reality is it's all the same thing. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, because what happens in Mage is there's a deeper reality. Right. That the characters can eventually attain enlightenment where they understand the process behind conceptual reality. Huh. Okay. And, and this is where I say it's that idea of it's advancing this weird combination of feature and trope. Mm -hmm. Because not only does the player have to do what, what, what you're saying, what you do in Champions and Mage, coming mm -hmm. up with an explanation beyond just the mechanics... The player realizes his character is full of shit as well and has to deal with that on top of coming up with what erroneous philosophy the character is applying to the rules to get the desired effect. Oh, I think I have it, a headache. It sounds worse than it is. Uh-huh. Because ultimately what's happening is the mechanics of the game, the gamisms. Mm-hmm. And the features of the setting are conspiring to force the participant to roleplay. Right. So if I'm saying my character is this reincarnated wizard, I can't just say that and then, no, oh, lightning bolt. I have to really ham up the part for sake of the game. Like, if, mm -hmm. I'm, not, if I'm not hamming it up, if I'm not thinking about what gestures they're using, because there's rules for different foci, right. for different powers, like for different mm -hmm. abilities and and if i'm not doing all of that then i'm failing because i'm i might not even be getting a role so you've got to ham up the character mm -hmm. who the player knows is totally wrong about everything in the universe but the character thinks they are and you have to play through that so you're playing the character on three different levels to do anything in this damn game wow it's no it's no wonder mage was such a huge hit <laughs> It was because if you can wrap your head around it, and eventually you can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was that your brain exploding? Yes, that was my brain exploding. <laughs> exactly. It's it's a lot of fun once you get the hang of it. Okay. Because the mechanics, because a lot of gamers I I found at least up until like say the two thousands were very uptight. And this is like we said with comedy, it's hard to do comedy because players couldn't let go enough to mm -hmm. fail entertainingly. This game gives you an excuse to ham it up. Mm -hmm. The more you do that, the more you succeed. Wow. Okay. But again, because it's it's such a different game conceptually, mm -hmm. it, it's difficult for especially experienced gamers to kind of get into the part. Yeah, I can see that. I can totally see that. In fact, I'm trying to remember if I ever played Mage. I think I did once. I think I, you ran it once. And I'm, when I say this, folks, I'm talking about 25 years ago. So that's why I'm saying I think. Um, but yeah, I think I did play it with you guys at least once. But yeah, it's it's a it's a very neat idea. I've always thought Mage was was a fascinating idea. But oh my God, is it is it a little bit of a mind twist? Yeah, in some ways too. I would think Mage would be the official beginning of the narrativist school of gaming thought mm -hmm. because it's kind of the first game and the first really popular one that played on that idea of 
you're not just gaming the character, you're kind of gaming the setting and the story as well. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. And I would definitely agree that the White Wolf stuff, generally speaking, is the foundation probably for the whole narrativist approach. Yeah. I think that a lot of that stems out of the White Wolf idea, which brought a lot of people in who thought more in terms of story and less in terms of mechanics. Yeah. And I'd also say that the White Wolf stuff comes out of second edition Cyberpunk. Oh, really? Because that was the first time you had a game that was really putting the emphasis not on necessarily the tropes, it was features of the setting, mm-hmm. but the stupid shit that people in that world would do. Right. That cyberpunk, the concept was always style over substance. Yes, yes it was. But first edition didn't have like any of that. But second edition, they really started hammering style over substance because they'd come up with like goofy cybernetics that by by all rights your character should be getting. And like weird concepts and weird like bits of equipment and stuff Mm -hmm. and that really kind of i think starts the idea that the story and the setting might be a little bit more important than just the character Mm -hmm. and then when you get to white wolf white wolf was there the vampire that starts it basically starts the world of darkness Mm -hmm. they really do kind of hit that old you know fashion over fact drum really really hard yes they do and that's what starts that narrativist idea because it's it it's that idea of i'm not necessarily solving the adventure i'm just this character has a life Mm -hmm. yeah although their early stuff did have here's the adventure to solve but they moved away from that like i say i think when you hit mage it's that idea that the participants, not just the game master, can play the setting and can play the story, not just the character. Right. Hmm. That's interesting idea. Playing the setting in a game. Yeah. Like that's what narrativist stuff tends to be. And mm-hmm. I got a I got a couple on, on my list here, a couple games from now. Okay. That are about that idea that a simulation game is kind of called that because you're simulating an action. Mm -hmm. Whereas a narrative game is you're setting up a narrative. You're setting Mm. up a story. Right. And games up until around, I think, Mage, are all simulation games just because that's how people think of it, is that I'm simulating some kind of event in the Mm -hmm. story or the life of the character but that event is the focus right yeah yeah mage changes that up because now we're at the point of the reasoning behind the event Mm -hmm. is just as important Mm -hmm. and that's where i say i think you start seeing that that kind of bend okay okay so where do we go from here then where do you think that uh, things evolve from there I think what, in a lot of ways, I would say you get that idea, the narrativist idea, mm-hmm. the first time is a game that we've mentioned. It's one of my favorites, but it's not well known, was it came from the Late, Late, Late Show. Okay. 
And it's because the concept of that game is when you're playing the adventure, mm-hmm. you're playing it like a regular straight up adventure. Right. But the concept of the game is that adventure is a movie being shown on late night TV. It's a B movie. Right. And your character is actually an actor who's playing a part in that movie. Right. And to that end, when you make up your character, you make them up as one of these actors. When the Game Master announces the adventure, depending on the type of movie, there's specific rules for the genre. Mm -hmm. And your character gets kind of modified. So there'll be skills everybody has. So if we're doing a Western, Mm -hmm. everybody's got to be able to shoot a pistol and ride a horse. Right. So every character gets those at minimal levels. If you've already have them at higher level, you use your higher level. Right. When you're getting ready for the for the game, everybody picks a role. So if we're doing a western, there'll be the town sheriff will be a role in this mm-hmm. film. Right. Um, the Gabby Hayes character, the old school marm. <clears throat> these right. are, are their roles in the movie, and you will you'll pick which one you want to play. Mm-hmm. Which is your character, who's an actor, playing that part. Right. And if there's there's a dispute, one of your stats is fame. Fame works kind of like luck and experience in other games. Mm-hmm. If you have a higher fame, then you get to pick first. I see. When you get your role, you get your equipment, you get a couple extra skills, and then that's what you are for this adventure, being for this movie. Right. Now, can I upstage other actors? Oh, hell yeah. There's there's all kinds of... Um, and this is where I say, I think this is where you start getting the narrativist idea mm-hmm. solidified because you can do all kinds of stuff. Like if I want to have a piece of anachronistic equipment, mm-hmm. I can basically... My character, the actor, throws a fit until the director lets them have it. Right. You get like a special fame role. And if I make it like instead of being the sheriff with my revolver, I can have an Uzi. Okay. <laughs> because B-movies very seldom made sense. There's all kinds of stupid shit that went on behind the scenes that led to this debacle up on the screen. And right. the game simulates it. Right. If during the game I get my ass handed to me, I can make another check and claim that was my stunt double. <clears throat> so if my character gets killed, and if you die, you die for that adventure because you died in the movie, but you come back in the next one. Right. But if my stunt double gets murdered, then I just show up the next scene and I'm perfectly fine. It wasn't me at all. Right. There And there's all kinds of little things like that. You can do the uh, Grindhouse thing from, uh, what was the first part of gr- uh, Grindhouse? That, uh, Planet, Planet Terror? Yeah. Where if you remember, they're like trapped in the building and it's on fire. And what do we do? And then you see the uh, real missing. And then it comes back and they're outside going, man, we barely escaped. You can <laughs> you can do that in the late, late, late show. You can like you can call for like a missing scene. Right. Or you can call for a rewrite. Right. Which, which means if I get my ass handed to me, we play it out again. The idea right. being that I, I pitch a fit until the director has the scene rewritten and we have to reshoot. Right. And then each genre has rules. So if we're playing the cowboy thing and the bad guys are, they, they, they could have an 18 day lead. If we make our riding roles, we can always head them off at the pass. Wow. Okay. And this is where I say it's, it's kind of that nerdivist idea. Cause it's bringing in the idea that it's, I don't just control my character. 
I'm having an influence on the world and the story mm-hmm. on like a fundamental level outside of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a good game. I, I I'm I'm disappointed that they didn't do more supplements. The kung I, fu rules are great. I bet they are. <laughs> I bet they are. Um, okay, that w- that would have been a lot of fun to play. Actually, it's too mm. bad I never got a chance to play that one. I think they would have liked that. <laughs> well, you can still play. It's still it's still available. Like I say, it's one of those weird. It's one of those weird kind of small press games. This was um, mm-hmm. was it? I think it was Stellar that did it. The same guys who did uh, uh, Nightlife. Yes, yes, I remember Nightlife. Yeah, which which was the World of Darkness before World of Darkness. It's the yep. same guys. This was okay. like one of their first games. Right. And so they decided that wasn't working, so they decided to make a true horror game. Unfortunately, they didn't put enough vampires and um, pouting vampires in it, so it didn't go over go over anywhere. Oh no, they're they're there. Like uh, Nightlife does have the angsty monster thing in Spades. It's just that when Wad came out like a year or so later, mm-hmm. it was the books were like super pro bound. They were super flashy. They made a big big thing of it. They just kind of outshadowed everybody else. Ah, okay. So it was a case of style over substance? Yeah, basically. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. How meta. (laughs) Okay. So where do we go from there then? So we got, it came from Late 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 Show, which definitely sounds like a ball of fun. And then? (laughs) Um, The one that I would probably say is sort of a parallel Mm -hmm. would be Torg. You better tell our audience what Torg is. (laughs) Tor- Torg is a weird one. It's not like other role-playing games. The idea is that we're invaded by by beings from another dim- from a multiple other dimensions, really. Mm-hmm. And they bring their own reality with them. Yep. And and what Torg does is each of these realities fits one of our stereotypical genres. Mm-hmm. And when it when it hits, when it lands, it adjusts our world to fit their reality. Right. And it brings with it the tropes from that style of story. Mm-hmm. It even kind of uh, plays upon a trope that runs through almost everything ever made. Mm-hmm. That the reason they attack our world is because human beings in our world have possibility energy. Okay. Like, that's why, like, anything can happen, you know, we can create things, we can... We can overcome great odds. We can also commit huge acts of villainy because our world generates this this possibility energy that you need in order to do things that affect the the the, the universe, that affect the story, basically. Mm-hmm. And when they solidify their reality here, it bleeds off a lot of that possibility energy because it changes how things work. It doesn't have the unlimited potential that our world naturally does. And they capture that energy when it bleeds off. Right. And that's what they're attacking for. And it it plays upon that idea of, of, of tropes by making the tropes an actual gameism. Right. Like to the point that there's axioms and laws. Axioms are, uh, what were they? They were magical, social, spiritual, and technological. Mm-hmm. And they're levels. Right. And if you reach a certain level then your reality lets certain things happen. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems in the game is there's the living land, which is like your lost world caveman kind of thing. 
Right. Well, the social axiom for that world is a lot lower than ours, which means you just can't organize on a great scale. Right. Beings in that world just cannot conceive of, of an organized society. Mm-hmm. And when we'd send guys in to attack, you'd send the army in. Well, the army's a big structured organization. As the reality would affect the people there, they'd forget how things like rank and plans and thinking ahead work. Right. They'd revert to being cave people. Yeah. And then the laws would be things that are specific mm-hmm. uh, to that setting. So there's like um, the the Nile Empire, which is like your pulp world. Right. Where we've mentioned basically the more flashy and over the top the action you're trying to do, the easier it gets. Right. Because the that world is all about flashy over the top action. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, sword and sorcery world. That what ends up happening is if you're a good guy, you become increasingly handsome. If you're a villain, you become increasingly evil and twisted because in high fantasy, you wear your alignment on your sleeve. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And oh. it. Oh, go ahead. Okay. That, that sounds pretty cool. Now, here's a question then. In Torg, do the players, are they supposed to know that, like, so for example, if I travel to the Nile Empire, once I've entered that reality zone, do I'm aware that this is that reality here functions differently than it should? You are, and what ends up happening because Torg is also weird as a role playing game because it has an end. Mm-hmm. It was conceived of of having an ending. Mm-hmm. So again, I think it's one of the first role playing games I'd seen that done that. So it it's it's again, the story is taking precedence over the action in a lot of cases because you know you have a finite story. Right. Okay. And as it goes on, people from our world and different worlds kind of start learning how things work. Because mm-hmm. one of the things at the beginning of the game, our world doesn't have laws. Okay. But you find out kind of halfway through the game, we do. But nobody realized it because nobody's ever looked at it in those terms. But once they start learning that reality has these predictable ways that it works in these other these other dimensions, mm-hmm. we start realizing it works like that. It's always worked like that in ours. We just didn't know it. And we have there's different rules for for uh, for our Earth, right? That don't show up until a supplement halfway through the game, like through the publishing run, right? Because we didn't know it at that point. Oh, I see. So even the idea of tropes existing at all becomes a gameism in the mm-hmm. game. Okay. Okay. No, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. And uh, if I recall right, Tro- Torg also makes heavy use of cards, for example. Yeah, they, they, they do. You have what they call the, uh, the drama deck. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of each game, you get so many of them. Mm-hmm. And you spend them, you get them back. You can spend them to get bonuses. Uh, they're used for determining initiative. And they also have effects, because I, I was always a fan of the... They have, like, the long-lost relative card. Mm-hmm. That if, during a scene, I play that card, one of the NPCs is a long-lost relative. Right. So if we've been captured by, like, evil Nazis, 
and I play the card. One of them is actually my brother, and I'm like, Bob, is that you? And then Bob comes out of it because that little realization lets his old personality start kicking in, and he resists, like, being turned into a Nazi by this reality, and he shoots the other ones, and then we escape, and I rescue Bob, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's cool. I like that it, one. It is, and again, those cards lend that idea that the players can affect the story as well. Right. Okay. Like, that was hit up until then. Mm-hmm. That was almost unheard of. Like, you affected the story through your character, not by outright right. affecting the story. And it's interesting how the more narrativist we become, the more power the players get. Yeah. Well, power and, the... and, and responsibility. Yes. <laughs> responsibility, huh? Anyway, um, but yeah, the more power player, the more the more players are actually part of the whole storytelling process. Mm-hmm. It's and they share some of the power of the GM. So okay, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. So I, I suppose eventually we'll get to games where there is no GM, like there literally is just the players, and maybe there's a rotating GM spot that whoever's more appropriate in that scene or not doing anything takes the GM spot for that scene. That's been done. I know it has. Uh, Graham has <laughs> described that to me. We actually mm-hmm. didn't... You, I don't remember. We did an interview with Graham about those types of games a long yep. time ago. Yep. Because that's that's um, one of the things that, that you're, you're seeing. Because I'm a fan of Cosmic Patrol. Mm-hmm. And in Cosmic Patrol, each scene you change who's game mastering. Right. And it leads to a weird effect because as you play, you earn what they call plot points. Mm-hmm. Which I can spend to... to basically completely change the story Mm -hmm. and i can use those to help or harm my fellow players which is almost turns into a variation of the late show you were talking about earlier it does but the late show game has a definite game master Mm -hmm. whereas like yeah cosmic patrol if you're about to take out the villain and i wanted to use him next scene i could just keep spending plot points you miss or blow yourself up hitting like a fuel tank or something and then he shows up next scene when i'm running it (laughs) Right. Which, again, it leads to a weird, because what you've done now is you've taken to that that weird level well, where you're gamerizing what lies beyond the narrative zone, I guess. Ooh, the narrative zone. Yeah, like, I don't know how to... It's, we're not just playing the story now. Mm-hmm. We're playing the story against each other. <laughs> So, so we're like gods competing for how the story turns out. Yeah, based yeah, that's probably the best way of looking we're at it. Engaging in a war of reality. We're just like, no, I'm taking going this direction, and we're just <laughs> fighting for the steering wheel. Yeah, that's probably the best way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that'll go well. <laughs> well, it depends. If you've got the right group, that's a lot of fun. Right. That's true. If you've got typical gamers that are getting pissed off that you're spoiling, like, them beating the villain and getting XP. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, wow. Um, and so I guess that's... <laughs> is that basically where this goes in the end? Is that, is that kind of where this whole examination of tropes goes? Is basically Cosmic Patrol? You know, in in, in a lot of ways... Yeah, I, I think... I don't know if I'd necessarily use the verb goes... Oh, I know. It's it's um, one direction or branch that this is taken. Yeah, but it's it's that notion of um, mm-hmm. it's taken us down a whole new way of looking at role playing games. Period. 
Yes, which is great. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of starts broaching into the idea of other medium and other, like, entertainment. Mm-hmm. Because you've had, like, say, a lot of movies in the last five years mm-hmm. that are playing on the tropes, that they're making the audience part of the 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 tropes not just the 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 factors not just the 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 story itself but what goes into the story and that's kind of where a game like cosmic patrol takes gaming Mm -hmm. so like say deadpool right deadpool talks right to the audience like he's explaining you know oh and we always do this i hope somebody got that on film that kind he's doing for movies what Mm -hmm. a game like cosmic patrol does for gaming that you're making the participants part of the process right and and not just participants yes of course deadpool is supposed to be insane but whatever well yeah but and that's how it manifests but that's ultimately how you you kind of get away with doing that in story right right it sets up because the audience in, in a, a movie is still passive. It's not active like a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. And even though you're making it more active, you've got to give the audience that way in. Mm-hmm. Like if, if if Iron Man looked at the screen and said, you ever have one of those days, folks? People would be like, okay, it's kind of funny. But you set this idea up, well, Deadpool's completely nuts, and he this is his shtick, and he does it. And then you can get away with it, because the audience is expecting it. And then yeah. once you've got that, you drag them down this road they've never been down before. Yeah, and that's why the first Deadpool movie is a hoot. Mm-hmm. And I think why Cabin in the Woods wasn't like a big mega hit. Oh, interesting. Why? Well, Cabin in the Woods does the same thing. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah, because it's it's all about. Have you seen it? Oh yeah, I've seen it. Traveling in the Woods is a great movie. I love it, mm-hmm. and it plays upon. It explains why all of the things in a horror movie happen. Yeah, I know. It's it's the chill of horror movies, but it never quite lets the audience in on what's really going on. Yeah, because the subtext, like you know, what's going on story wise, that they have to do this to appease the gods because of the ritual, but you mm-hmm. never find out what that what that is or who the gods are or why they do this. Right. Yeah. Do you know who the gods are? They're the elder gods. There's Cthulhu and friends. No, they're not. They're the audience. Oh. Okay, I didn't get and, that, but okay, sure. And and very few people did because it's not really ever quite revealed in the movie there's little hints about that kind of thing okay and i but read the th- gods show up at the end and kind of yeah. and that's like not a, us they're like a big hand but that's what what conceptually they were right and that was why they demand the sacrifice and they demand this entertainment and they demand that it plays out a certain way because right. we're all aware of the tropes right and if you don't get the tropes a lot of times your entertainment feels like something's missing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite feel right. People get grumpy. They get unhappy. That was the inspiration for the film. And like I say, I think if at some point they had have done something like that. Yeah, that's one of those weird things where the optimal would be, which we can't do, would be to turn the screen into a mirror so the audience is suddenly looking at themselves. Yeah, or or what you do at the end of it 
when 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 the last scene plays out with the last two characters the whole point of the movie is that the stoner guy doesn't die right yeah and it fucks up the whole plot and then my favorite though is when they're in the control room yelling at the japanese ghosts yeah. they're six-year-olds they're six-year-olds but anyway if they had it done as hmm i know it's a great film oh it's so great if they had it done a scene at the end where after like it all wraps up mm-hmm. like maybe during the end credits where you see people like you, that that while the credits they do like where they pause the credits and you see a guy in the real world mm-hmm. blogging online about what a stupid movie this was and they're all complaining about how it didn't work out but they're complaining it in the way that the gods would have complained about the thing not playing out in the film mm-hmm. and then that would give you that clue oh my god wait no that was like they're complaining about this because it was a movie they were watching and they're actually like the gods and this is the whole but you never quite get that so that whole yeah. thing about who the gods are it just feels incomplete by the end of the film yeah yeah i see your point mm-hmm. i'm not sure i quite agree with your your take I, I i hear with the way to do it but i'm not sure i can go with a better one like it, that's it's a really tricky one to do especially to do properly yeah because the the trick would be at some point at the end Mm. When the gods are displeased, you let the audience know for for even for a split second that the gods are displeased with how the events played in the same way that the audience is displeased with the movie. Right. Yeah. And then that makes that connection. You're going, oh, man, it's like, we're the gods. Trippy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and again, huh. but it, it's because it's that idea that they're they're It's an early kind of attempt Hmm. at doing for movies what chill and torg and cosmic patrol did for gaming right of making the audience part of the process and not just the event right well i mean that thing had been kind of done before the first movie i remember seeing that was the the scream movies they were but they had the problem that it it was still all the the Mm -hmm. the it was still all in setting Mm. and it failed because the idea was you've got all these kids that know all the tropes and still fell for them. Yeah, I know that was half the fun. Well, I guess that's the biggest trope of all dumbass teenagers in a horror film. Yeah, exactly. How could you be any dumber than if you know the tricks and still fall for them? (laughs) Exactly. So, so there's that. Mm, Yeah. There's, there's that. There was always attempts like that's, um, in a weird way, that's what uh, Frank Castle was all about. Mm-hmm. Back in the 50s when he had all the gimmicks with the movies, like the Tingler, where they'd electrify the seats. Yeah, yeah. Or or the, oh, what was the one with Emerjo? Oh, it was a haunted house movie where they had, like, at one point, the it, they'd have, like, a skeleton on a string float around the audience because it was, like, a skeleton ghost in the movie. And it would, if you time it right, it looks like it comes out of the screen and is attacking the audience and stuff. Right, right, yeah. Even that is is more the whole idea of virtual reality. Even is trying to to make the experience mm-hmm. something more than it normally is for the audience. Right. Yeah. And it, in that way, you're kind of going backwards, where you're trying to to make it more real for the audience. Mm-hmm. But you can also go at this other way, where you're letting the audience in. Like that's that's for for magic. That's kind of what Penn and Teller do. Mm-hmm. They make you watching part of the trick because they always spoil it for you. They explain 
at least partly how they're doing what they're doing or why they're doing what they're doing. Except, you know, I was actually just listening to an interview with Teller last week. Teller mm. can speak, by the way, just let everyone <laughs> know. In fact, he speaks very, very eloquently. In fact, I think he would be, um, he's one of those people that if you know how eloquent and smart this person is, it's super intimidating. <laughs> so that's part of the reason why I think he keeps quiet. But he said that actually, because the, the host asked him about that, like you guys show a lot of the tricks. In fact, a lot of magicians hate them for it. But the truth is, Teller says, no, we're really only showing, we're showing the trick and how it's done when we think we can make it interesting. Because mm -hmm. he said, because Teller's words were, most tricks are really, really ugly. If you actually understand how they're done, they're very mechanical and it's, they're not interesting at all. If you actually understand how it's done, mm -hmm. it looks interesting, but that's an illusion. It's actually very ugly. And he said, the only tricks that we, we reveal are the ones where we think we can make it look interesting while we're revealing it, but we're still doing that to the audience at the same time. <laughs> like for example, their, uh, their classic one is the clear cups and balls where mm -hmm. they use clear cups to do the cups and balls routine, you know, it's like, okay, which ball, which, you know, which one is the ball under? Basically, you have the ball and you, you're mixing the ball, uh, the cups around to show which one is it under and everything. But they're in the process, they're showing you, but Teller is at such a level, and I know this from listening to Penn, and also I've seen them do the routine. Teller is at such a level that he can, even when it's clear, he can still fool you. Mm -hmm. He's literally doing it in front of your face and he's still fooling you because his skill level is so damn high. That's what, that, and in fact, that's kind of how they accidentally came up with the routine. He said they were at a truck stop and they were bored and they were waiting for something back many years ago. And he only had clear cups, so he started experimenting with it. And Penn noticed that he could actually do the trick and still fool you, even if you could see the ball the whole time. Wow. And because Teller was so good at it. And that's why I said, oh, why don't we make this part of our act? And so they did. And so they pretend to show you how it's done, and they kind of are, but at the same time, Teller is a capable of using his skill at an almost superhuman level to actually still fool you. Wow. Well, yeah, that's still kind of the role-playing game thing, though, because even if, mm -hmm. if we're taking turns being the game master and we're playing the story more than the characters, we're still ultimately playing a role-playing game. That's very true. That's very true. We're still ultimately accepting the set of rules and everything else that's going on and we're trying to play characters within the game etc etc so that's very true mm -hmm. all right on that note i think we should bring the show to a close um it's very time meta. for the classic goodbye trope hmm. <laughs> um why was there was there anything else you want to say don the, the only thing i still kind of wonder about this mm -hmm. and we've talked about it before is how much where we're at now you're starting to see like the role-playing game mentality spilling into other medium. Right. Because like I said, we, a lot of, even some of the gamer, the gamisms we've talked about, you can see in movies and that now. Right. No, you can. And I think we'll still see some of it, but the truth is most of it will come as virtual reality games become a big thing. Mm -hmm. If I for some reason that never catches on. Well, that's true. There is always a possibility. We may never come up with anything better than just kind of clunky headsets and that kind of thing, and it may never really catch. Mm -hmm. I suspect it will, though. I suspect that it's we won't be too long before we'll figure out some way to just like pump pump it directly into your head or something like that, and you'll mm -hmm. eventually be able to immerse yourself in these worlds. Because, and at that point, I mean, 
then it'll become the issue of, okay, how do you want that world to function? You know, what tropes is this world supposed to function under? And how are you going to play it? That, and when you start doing that, you're going to have, like, you'll see in real time the direct relation between, like, tropes and features and that, and how the brain interprets them. And actually, I just thought of something, a spinoff of that. The whole genre of lit RPG is a giant trope fest or giant gamerism fest, as the case may be. That's true. Because it's literally about characters who are playing characters inside a game most of the time or a setting where they secretly know all the rules, in many cases anyway, of of how that setting really works and what tropes it's operating under and such. And they're even making comments about it and lampshading it sometimes and saying, oh, look at this. Here's the girl in distress. Uh, should I go rescue her knowing full well that this is going to be a trap of some kind? Uh, huh. I, uh, how bored am I today? Um, and they do that in, because they know they're playing a game, whether they're trapped in the game or whether whatever. They, they, but they, they're well aware of that whole thing. And so lit RPG and many light novels that take lit RPG uh, elements to them, like, like uh, isekai novels, for example, are using that nonstop. I've seen that kind of thing other places. There's a, a good Rick and Morty line about that. Oh? Where Rick's phone goes off. I'm not answering a literal call to adventure. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that mm-hmm. one. <laughs> That's I like that one. And on that note, thanks for listening, folks. And uh, I hope when the call to adventure comes for you, that you do answer it. Because it's going to be awesome. Or it'll really suck. It will depend on what genre you're in. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Good night, folks. Wait, how'd I end up being the sidekick? He doesn't make it past the commercial. I'm the funny one, man. Just shut up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! <laughs> <laughs>